Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. We are continuing a series that is going to lead us right up into Easter. We kicked it off last week. And in a lot of ways, it's a good setup for Easter, even though we're looking at the events like right after Easter, because we're looking at the kind of gritty, down-to-earth, uh, certainly not perfect circumstances that surrounded the beginning of Christianity and surrounded the beginning of the church movement. And uh, if you were with us last week, don't worry, it won't be quite as intense uh, this week, or at least not quite as violent, hopefully. Um, uh, but to kick things off, uh, last week, we acknowledged that the past few years uh, in our life, like here and right now, have often been described by this same word. It's been used and overused, and that word is unprecedented, right? Remember every commercial in 2020 and 2021 was like in these unprecedented times. Uh, it's just this phrase that's like worked its way into our cultural understanding. And in a lot of ways, it, it's had some staying power. Like I think if I took a poll of the room, and we don't have to do this right now, you don't have to throw up your hand, but uh, if I took a poll of the room and I said like, hey, are we living in crazy times? I think most of us knee-jerk reaction would be like, yeah, the world is crazy, right? The world is out of control. But the question we're asking throughout this series is are these times that we're living in actually all that unprecedented? Are these times that we're living in actually all that unusable, unusual? And, and if you're paying attention, this series is called Precedented Times, so it's like the punchline is in the title. Uh, we believe that although the world is crazy and although there's uncertainty everywhere, that that's actually not new. That, that actually Jesus followers have been navigating uncertain times from the very beginning. And so in light of that, what we're asking is if these times aren't all that unprecedented. Is it possible that we can learn from those who went before us about how we can practice an active and a living faith even in the midst of crazy times? And so speaking about those who have gone before us, um, I want to start things off today by asking you to consider, maybe I think it's a fascinating question, especially if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. I want to ask you, uh, what do you think should come to mind when people hear the word Christian? Like, what do you think people should think when they hear uh, that a Christian moved into their neighborhood or their daughter is dating a Christian or like whatever that may be? What do you think people should think when they hear the word Christian? Or if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm really excited that you're here and thanks for giving us a shot and, and checking things out. Uh, I'm glad you're here and it's good for you to be here because you don't have to do anything that I say, okay? Like everybody who's here and likes trying to follow Jesus, they feel some sense of obligation to like, okay, I should probably listen. You get a hall pass for all of that. Uh, but if you're here, maybe a better way to phrase the question is what does come to your mind when you hear the word Christian, right? What, what is it that, that pops up in your mind? Uh, again, if you hear somebody say like, hey, the, the neighbor's moving next door and they're Christians or there's this girl I like, but her family's kind of religious, so they go to church and they're Christians. Like, like, what is the thing that pops into your mind? I experience this all the time whenever I have to answer that wonderful American question, what do you do for a living? Uh, because like, I can see it when I'm like, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh, <laughs> right? It's like, what did I just say to him? Like, I'm gonna throw the heavenly lightning bolt at him or something. Like, uh, anyway, the question is like, what should come to your mind or what does come to your mind when somebody says something like that. And, and last week we talked uh, about a word that probably never comes to your mind as it relates to a Christian in, in our current context, and that word is fearless. 
We, we talked last week about uh, how Jesus, we went back to our roots and we looked at some texts around Jesus in and, and, and the moment where he sacrificed his life and we talked about how Jesus, who was at the epicenter of our faith, one of the number one things about Jesus is he was extraordinarily and absolutely fearless in the face of uncertainty, in the face of dis- difficulty. And, and talking about uncertainty, last week we said uh, that back then and now, the maybe difficult reality is that uncertainty is unavoidable that we've all been through uncertain times together. You likely have more uncertain times yet to come at some point in your life. Uncertainty is ironically one of the most certain things that we face. But what we said last week is that although uncertainty is unavoidable, fearful is an option. Fearful is optional. That, That even though we go through crazy times, even though we go through unpredicted times, fearful is optional for us because Again, if you're following Jesus, our savior and, and our boss and our master and the one who started this whole thing off, he was absolutely fearless even in the face of situations and circumstances that certainly deserved fear. And he was just wasn't afraid of anything. And that went on and extended to the first century Christians who then began moving this movement forward in Jesus' name. A, a part of what made them so fascinating to others was their fearlessness. Like they did not fear death and they did not fear loss and they didn't fear illness and because of that they were extraordinarily selfless because when you're not afraid of losing something it it makes it that much easier to be focused on others when you're not afraid of losing something it's that much easier to practice generosity because you're not holding on so tightly to everything When, when you're not afraid of losing something it's easier to be compassionate. And so for us, like, when you talk about what a Christian is, it should be said of us uh, that we're absolutely fearless and in our fearlessness, we're freed up to be compassionate and generous because we're not afraid of losing something. But something else, in addition to fearlessness that we talked about just a little bit last week was this idea of confidence. Uh, remember, we talked about uh, some of the martyrs in the first and second century, people who literally gave their life professing their faith. Uh, we talked about a woman named Perpetua who has this incredible story, but, but they showed this extraordinary confidence, not confidence like arrogance, but, but a humble confidence, a, a confidence that, that's just sure about the things that really matter. And, and what's remarkable is that if you go all the way back to the beginnings of the church, one of the hallmarks of the early church movement was people actually thought it was a good thing when Christians showed up, right? Not, not like people in charge like the Roman government or the religious order of its day, but like ordinary people, when Christians showed up, it was like, oh, something good is gonna happen, right? I don't know that I believe what they believe about all that resurrection stuff, but they're gonna be good to us. It was amazing. And and a Christian, at its most simple, it, it means a little Christ or it means a Jesus follower, right? Somebody who's trying to make their life look like Jesus. And last week, we reminded all of us that Jesus looked nothing like this, Right? Jesus wasn't all pretty and polished up, and, and he wasn't the way that we often portray him in pictures and movies. Uh, sometimes we get like toga-wearing hippie Jesus who's just like carrying a lamb around and just gentle and fragile and loves everybody. But what we talked about last week was in an extraordinary detail. Jesus was not fragile at all. Jesus was exceptionally bold. And in light of that, Christianity is not fragile, and his followers shouldn't be fragile either. And, and alongside that, I mentioned earlier, but we acknowledge that Following Jesus in difficult times isn't unprecedented. Following Jesus in difficult times is almost a prerequisite to following Jesus at all, which leads me to a question. The question is, what's wrong with us today? Or or maybe to phrase it more accurately, what went wrong with us? Because in the first century, right, when Christianity first began, Christians were irresistible, 
In fact, the only reason Christianity survived the first century where the Roman government, the most powerful government of the day, and the Jewish temple and the religious order of the day, both were trying to persecute and shut down this little cult called the Way, right? This little gathering of people who believed in the resurrection. In the face of all of that persecution, the only reason it survived was that people found something so uniquely attractive about Christians because Christians were like Christ, And one of the remarkable things about Jesus is that Jesus liked people who were nothing like him and people who were nothing like Jesus liked him back. It was this extraordinary moment and this extraordinary thing. In the first century, there was just something about the community of Christians that was almost irresistible, that they were fearless even in the face of a world and situations and circumstances that certainly brought so much to fear. So what happened to us? Right? Why, why is that not what people think about when they think about Christian? Because they think about things. Right? When you say Christian, something comes to people's mind. There's actually a study by the Barna Group, which is a Christian research group, and I'm not going to share everything with you, but you can probably imagine. Like, the knee-jerk thought when they hear the word Christian is that they're judgmental, that, that they're hypocritical, that, that they're like, backwards-looking. And, and it's not good stuff when you dig into what people think when they hear the word Christian. And why is it that somewhere along the way, we lost our reputation as the fearless ones, as the confident ones. Why is it that in our cultural moment right now, when I look around and when I hear Christians like talking about what's going on in the world and, and talking about what's going on in our country, right, as we gear up for an election cycle, and especially with the economy being uncertain, like why is it that Christians are freaking out as equally as everybody else? I can imagine Jesus would look at us in this moment and be like, why? You live in the United States of America and you're freaking out about who might be the president or, or, or about your economy. Like, I think Jesus would say, have you forgotten who you follow? Like, have you forgotten that, that I willingly walked into Main Street in Jerusalem knowing I was going to my own arrest and my own death? And tell me again what you're worried about right now. I, I, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? And, and If that's not embarrassing enough, you're going to love where we're going today, okay? Because I'm going to share with you uh, this passage of scripture that is so extraordinary. Like it is, it is so rich and so gritty and down to earth and and packed full of emotion that in the time that we have, there's no way that I can like mine out everything that's worth in there. Uh, But we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews chapter 11 specifically. And uh, Hebrews is kind of a fascinating book of the Bible. It originally was a letter that was circulated around the early church. Um, Something that's fascinating about Hebrews is we don't know who wrote it. Uh, So a lot of the New Testament letters were written by the Apostle Paul as he was planning churches. Some people think that Paul wrote Hebrews, but most scholars don't think that that's probably the case. Uh, It may have been written by a man. It may have been written by a woman. We're not exactly sure. So I'm going to try and like be consistent in whatever I pick as I'm talking about the author here. Uh, We don't know who exactly wrote it, but in the first century, this document was so important to the church that they copied it and they passed it around and they talked about it and eventually they compiled it and they they put it in the Bible and they made it a part of Christian scripture. And, And we don't know who wrote it, but we do know something about why they wrote this letter because this was a letter written to Jewish Christians hence the title Hebrews, right? Jewish Christians, people who previously were Jewish but then became followers of Jesus who at this moment were beginning to wonder about the church. And specifically, they were beginning to ask these questions. They were starting to ask, is it worth it and is it working? Right, right? Is, it, is it worth it to follow Jesus when there's so much at stake? And for them, they're like, I've lost my job over this stuff and, and my kids are getting mistreated and and it's just tough to follow Jesus. And so they were asking the question, like, like, is it worth it to follow Jesus? And just as important, they're asking, is it working, right? Is the movement actually moving in the direction 
that we thought it was? Are we actually making a difference? And here's the thing that is so hard for us to imagine, right? 2,000 years ago, nobody knew what was going to happen with the church. Like like 2,000 years ago, we take this for granted, but nobody knew what was going to happen with this little group of people who believed in the resurrection, right? This ragtag group of people that were gathering together. There was no guarantee And they could have never imagined a town like Peru, Indiana, where there's a church and a bar on every corner. They they would have never fathomed something like that happening. They they couldn't imagine that most people you run into who who are married likely had their ceremony in a Christian church or with a pastor officiating, at least like on the surface, right? They they couldn't imagine that that when people pass away, that that funeral services would be held in churches, in chapels. They they, they couldn't possibly imagine because, because there were no churches, right? There were no church buildings. There was just this gathering of people who believed that Jesus was the Savior and, and believed that he was the Son of God and they believed that he literally rose from the dead because they either met someone who saw him or, or they met someone who talked to him on the other side of the resurrection. Because this letter, as it was written, we're talking like 40, 50, at max 70 years after the resurrection when the eyewitnesses were still eyewitnessing, when the eyewitnesses were still walking around and talking about it. And, and this, this group of people, they had no idea right? They're, they don't know where it's going to go. It, like, is it going to go anywhere? Is it going to spread beyond our little town? Are we just kidding ourselves? Are we lying to our kids, right? Is, is it going to work? Are, are we risking all this or throwing our lives away for virtually nothing? Is it work it? Is it worth it? And is it working? So the author of Hebrews writes to this first century audience, and essentially uh, they say, hey, it is so worth it, okay? And we're going to find out if it's working. And so they go on and it opens up this way. And if you grew up in church, uh, you've probably heard this verse quoted many, 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 many times. And it is so often misquoted and misunderstood. And I'm hoping we can kind of right size that uh, right now. But here's how the author starts out in this chapter. They say, now faith is confidence of what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. It's like this definition of what faith is. And, And in fact, it's just kind of a definition of what faith is in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be Christian faith. Uh, but man, I can remember like one of my little gripes from 2020, 2021 that I've got to like air out now is, do you remember like the catchphrase, especially that Christians rallied around throughout the pandemic? It, it was like put on banners and people posted it on social media and all that stuff. It, it was this mantra of faith over fear, right? Faith over fear. I said it, you probably said it. It's not a bad thing to say at all. But I had this moment just in how that faith was being expressed where, where sometimes, right, some of us said it and we meant something entirely different, but sometimes people would grab this mantra and they would say faith over fear and it functionally kind of meant like turn off your brain, put your head in the sound and ignore everything that's happening and just believe, right? Just have hope or just like it's gonna be okay or just, don't think about it. And man, that is so far from what faith, as it's just defined, actually means. Faith isn't about like just turn off your brain and just hope, but rather you've experienced faith before. Because if you've had a job before, you've exercised faith. Because I would be willing to bet, like if you've ever uh, applied for a job and you've worked for somebody, it it probably started that first week of work where you sat down across the table from your boss and they explained your job uh, orientation and all your responsibilities and that. And then at some point, they probably said, hey, and this is what your paycheck is going to look like. And in about two weeks, you're going to receive it right, or at the end of the month or whatever the cycle looked like, you're, you're going to receive that. And so then you went and you got all suited up and you showed up and on day one you worked confident in what you hoped for and assured that at the end of those two weeks you were going to get your check, right? You didn't have it yet. That's faith. 
You had faith that they would do what they said they were going to do. Faith is confidence that someone is going to fulfill their promise. And so this author writes and defines like faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And, and then they go on and they say this is what the ancients were commended for. And the author goes way back to the Old Testament and, and in this moment starts talking about some of the like giants of the faith. If you grew up going to Sunday school, right, you probably heard about these people like Moses and Moses' mama and Abraham and Isaac and all these incredible people. And, and he says these people were commended not because they like came up with something and convinced God to bless it, that's a magic trick, but rather they were commended because of their faith, because God made them a promise and they lived as if God was gonna keep his promise. Faith is simply confidence that God is gonna do what God has promised and, and walking by faith or living by faith means living your life every single day as if God can be trusted and as if God is gonna keep his promise. So then the author launches into this powerful, powerful passage, and here's what happens next. He lists off all these people, all the Old Testament heroes, like Noah's in there, Abraham's in there, Moses gets his turn, and he goes through, and then they sum it up and say, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. This is all these people, right? All these heroes of the faith, recorded in the Old Testament. They were still living by faith, or in other words, every day they were waking up and living as if God is gonna fulfill his promise. God is gonna fulfill his promise to us. And they lived their whole life trusting God, and they never saw God actually come through on his promise, right? They lived their whole lives practicing this active faith, but they did not receive the things promised. And this is referring to this promise that God made to Abraham, where, where God came to Abraham and God said, I'm going to make a, a nation out of you. I'm going to make this special group of people out of you. And this group of people is going to go on to bless the entire world. I'm going to bless the entire world through you and through your family is what God promised to Abraham. But Abraham didn't see that happen. And Isaac, his son, didn't see that happen. And Jacob and Moses, and on and on it goes. They did not see that promise fulfilled, and generation after generation after generation would pass on, but there was always this like core group. There was always this little remnant of people who continued to stay faithful to God, believing that one day God was going to fulfill his promise, that one day God was going to come through. And, and when you stop and think about that, right, if you stop and think about the people that the author is describing, it should be so convicting for us as it relates to our faith, shouldn't it? Because most of us, if you're like me, we pray something on Monday, and if it hasn't happened by Thursday, we're like, there's no God, right? <laughs> like, like, we ask for something, and then maybe you'll give God an extra week allowance. You're like, okay, God, maybe I didn't ask correctly. Like, we'll try again. But eventually, like, we opt out so, so, so fast. And man, some of those unanswered prayers, they happen in some of the most difficult and just emotional moments of our lives. I mean, I've prayed uh, for things that haven't happened. I've prayed for people to be healed, and they, and they weren't healed, or you know, something bad happens and you pray, and it's like in those moments, like how can I trust a God who seems so untrustworthy? And I think if this group of people that we've been talking about could talk to us, they're like, what? We lived our entire lives trusting God, and we never saw him come through on his promise, but we trusted him anyway. And then the author keeps going, and they double down on what they were just saying. They talk about people in more recent history at the time that they were writing, like the first century, and they say some of these people faced jeers and flogging. We talked about flogging last week, right? We're not going to get back into it again, but it's this terrible, terrible form of torture and punishment. Some of them faced chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning, not like summer of love stoning, okay, but like the painful way of dying stoning. They were sawed in two, not like a magic trick, but like 
the painful way of dying. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Again, we talked about some of these people last week, right? people in the first and second centuries who gave their lives for their faith, people who were persecuted and in the extraordinary pain of the martyrs. And then in this moment, the author kind of pauses. They kind of stop, and it's like they're reflecting. And it's almost like they have this moment on the other side of the resurrection where they're thinking, oh my gosh, what if all those people had given up? Right? What, what if all of those people had been unfaithful? What if they had just let go of the promise of God? And this author is sitting there as a Christian in the first century thinking, wow, right, wow. And then they write one of the most powerful statements, in my opinion, in the New Testament, reflecting on these people. They write, the world was not worthy of them. Right? And in light of their extraordinary faith, faith that persevered in difficult circumstances, faith that persevered without a reward, the world was not worthy of them. Maybe the author's thinking about their own gripes and complaints and Monday to Thursday faith or whatever, and in light of that, he thinks about these people and thinks the world was not worthy of them. And there was once a version of faith and a version of faithfulness that elicited heroic living like this. There was once upon a time a version of faithfulness to God that caused people to stand back and say, who are these people? Hey, what, what in the world? There was once upon a time a version of faithfulness that caused people to stop and stare there was this version of faith that caused people uh, to be so compelled by things that they didn't understand, things they maybe didn't even agree with, right? People who were like, I've been to Biology 101, I don't know about this resurrection stuff, but there's something about these people that I'm drawn into that I can't stay away from. And, and over and over time, that group grew and grew and grew, and it was extraordinarily diverse. It was extraordinarily diverse. It was rich people and poor people. It was masters and slaves. It was men and women, and children. It was multicultural. It was people from all different walks of life. There were Jews, and there were Gentiles, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it's why we're here today, right? It's why we're here today, and it's why we gathered together in Jesus' name. It's because there was once upon a time a version of faithfulness to God that was awe-inspiring. The author goes on. It says, these people were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, and then here's where we show up in the story, so pay attention if you're checking out on me. It says, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This author is writing in the first century to Christians, but it kind of extends to us as we're a part of that story. And, and the author says, since God had prepared something better for us, the reason that God didn't do what all of those faithful, faithful people hoped he would do is because he had a better and bigger plan in store. And it was actually for the entire world, right? Here we are. It was for the entire world to be invited in halfway around the world from where these documents were written and, and where this movement started moving. I, I mean, some of these people, they believe the promise was for the people of Israel. And, and John, as he famously wrote about Jesus, says not for God so loved Israel, but he says for God so loved the entire world that he gave his only son. And God was something, up to something so big and so, so other, so out there that these people couldn't even comprehend what he was up to, but they remained faithful anyway. And only together, us and them, would we be made perfect, or that idea of perfect means complete. So let me summarize what I'm getting at this way, what the author is getting at in this way. He's talking about these incredible people with this extraordinary faith back then. And, and he would say, them, those people, they were looking forward and they were faithful, 
Right? They were waiting for this promise to be fulfilled and they stayed faithful and they stayed faithful. They were looking forward to what God was gonna do and they stayed faithful even though they never saw him do it. And yet we are looking back and are often fearful. Right? They, they were looking forward. They were waiting for a promise. We're on the other side of the resurrection. We're looking back. Right? God promised Abraham and then God fulfilled that promise through Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead. The church was launched and here we are 2,000 years later and there is so much evidence for us. There is so much reason for us to double down and to bear down on our faith and there is so little reason, if you actually view it in context, for us to be so fearful. Right? We should be the most fearless, humble, but confident people on the planet, not because of what God has promised for our future, but because of what God has already done. Right? This promise that God fulfilled we're on the other side of it. So look, that's powerful, right? And maybe you're like, thanks for the review, Eric. I get it. What does this have to do with me living through the midst of crazy times? The good news is the author continues, and that's the exact turn that they make to their first century audience. They say, let me tell you what to do in light of all these things that have happened. And so they go on and they say, therefore, which by the way, this is just kind of a sidebar, but if you're ever trying to like study the Bible and you come across a word like therefore, it's helpful to remember like therefore tells us what it's there for. Right? Like whatever you just read, therefore is going to explain why it matters. So the author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, right? these people that we've talked about, all of those Old Testament heroes and saints, all those people who are so extraordinarily faithful, and for us it's even better right? because we live way farther down through the story and so countless people have been added to this cloud of witnesses. There's Peter and there's Paul. And, and then there's those first century and second century Christians, the church fathers and, and the martyrs who gave their lives. And then like, if you fast forward the story a little bit, in the 15th and the 16th century, there were extraordinary men and women who, who had the courage to take scripture and to translate it into all the languages of Europe and eventually into English. And many of them were burnt at the stake for doing this, but they had such extraordinary faith that God was gonna continue his promise that it tracks all the way up to us today. And since we are surrounded by such an extraordinary cloud of witnesses, what should we do? And he says, let us hide and whine and complain and hoard our resources just in case and put our Bibles in a drawer and build bomb shelters and purchase ammo and, and blame the cops and blame the president and blame the teachers and blame your mama and, and demand our rights and build the wall and tax the rich and play it safe and find somebody to sue and take back our country and then pray that Jesus comes back and takes us away before it gets any worse. Did I miss anybody? Right? Anybody not like a little offended at some point? <laughs> can you imagine how we sound to this great cloud of witnesses? Like, can you imagine? You're worried about what? You're scared of, of who? You're anxiety-ridden over, like, like, not even the great cloud of witnesses. Can you imagine how we sound to practicing Christians today in nations like Syria and Iran where there is real persecution happening? Right, it, it's spring break, and we're like, in our prayers, like, God, give me traveling mercies so I can get to the beach and enjoy my time. And look, that's great. I hope that happens for you. They're praying that they see their daughters again. Right, like, how embarrassing when we look at it. And I'm right there with you. Okay, but, but the author, says, here's what he says, what she says. When we're overwhelmed with anxiety, when it looks like the world's coming apart, when it looks like Christianity is in decline and nobody pays attention anymore, nobody wants to date a Christian anymore, and nobody practices generosity, right? And what happened? And why can't we have the good old days? And where's it all going? 
Here's what they say. They say, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. He says instead of blaming and shaming and being critical and being anxious and being nervous, we need to look in the mirror. We need to look in the mirror and we need to take an honest assessment of ourselves and ask ourselves some questions. Like, what's holding you back? What is it that keeps you from being all in with this movement? Right? If you really believe it, what is it that, that keeps you held back, that keeps you sheepish, that keeps you shy? Uh, because isn't it true that the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines? Isn't it true that in uncertain times, the certainty of faith should shine all the brighter? He's saying, what are you, what are you afraid of, really? What are you worried about? really? And what is it you need to throw off? What is it you need to leave behind? What is it that's hindering you from embracing the uncertainty and moving fearlessly forward as a follower of Jesus who is able to look back on the fact that God has kept his promise to Abraham and that God through Abraham did something for the entire world and we're on the other side of it? In case it's not enough, the author goes on a little bit more and says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And listen, you may or may not know this, you may or may not think in these terms, but what they're getting at is that we, like in this moment, you and me living in Peru, Indiana, in the year of our Lord, 2023, right? Like, like that we're here for a reason, that we have a race marked out in front of us, that there's a very specific difference that we're here to make in our culture and in our world and in our community. We have this specific race to run, and the question is, are we up for it? Or are we gonna just join the complaining bandwagon? Right? Are we just going to enjoy the blaming bandwagon? Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Other translations say the author, but I think pioneer is such a clear word that Jesus started something new. He's the one who sustains it, the perfecter. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. We talked about that last week. And then there's this line that a lot of times when we read it, I think we just kind of skip over it. Scorning it's shame. But remember last week, we said crucifixion. It actually wasn't designed to kill a person. I mean, ultimately it did that, but it was really designed to shame a person. It was designed to make an example of anyone who dared cross the Roman Empire. And Jesus grew up in this Roman-controlled region of Galilee, right? Jesus grew up in this region of Judea. And, and Jesus, I mean, Jesus, the little boy, he probably smelled a crucifixion before he ever saw one. He, he probably heard a crucifixion before he ever observed one. He probably saw the shame in those men's eyes that the Roman Empire wanted to make an example of. He knew the shame that lay before him, and he scorned it anyway and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And listen, I know it's heavy today, okay? I know it's a little tension-filled. Here's our problem. Me too, right? Here's our problem. Many of us have fixed our eyes on the wrong things. M many of us, our eyes are so fixed on safety and, and so fixed on security and, and who in the world we can blame for what's going on in our culture and in our nation. And, and as long as your eyes are fixed there, you can be a good American. Right? In fact, you'll be a great American in our current moment. That, that's perfect if you stay fixated on those things. But, but you won't run the race with endurance. Right? You'll stall out. You'll stay stuck and we will miss our opportunity and we'll miss our responsibility to be a light to our culture in this moment. And, and listen, I know like fix your eyes on Jesus is maybe the most pastor answer to the world's problems ever, right? Like just look at Jesus. It's not that simple or that trite. 
but maybe to make it a little more tangible for you. Uh, what it means to fix our eyes on Jesus, it means in everything that you say, in everything that you do, in everything that you encounter, you run it through the filter of these questions. Like, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus respond? Right? How, how would Jesus respond to that coworker that you're going to see tomorrow? Right? And you know, you know how they are. Like, what would Jesus say? What would Jesus do about that issue that those people caused? Right? How would Jesus respond? The author wraps up. It says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. And look, as we wrap up here, I'm going to take a little bit of a flyer because I am not an old man and I'm not really sure that I'm qualified to speak up to those older than me, uh, but I think it's worth the risk and I'm going to talk to people younger than me too, okay? So just track with me for a second. But for those in the room who are like, I don't know, let's say 45 and up, whatever, 40, if you want to be in there, like, many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart, right? Many of you, the reason is because you fixed your eyes on a political system or, or you fixed your eyes on a political leader or, or you fixed your eyes on the good old days, Right? Or, or you fixed your eyes uh, on the economy and, and you're growing weary and lovingly and gently, you got to knock it off because you're scaring the children. <laughs> like, like you're scaring the children. What I mean by that is there's a generation coming up behind you and, and a generation coming up behind me and, and they're taking their cue from us about what faith looks like. And do you know what so many of us are modeling for them right now? Do you know what so many of us are telling them? We're saying that, that man, the generation alongside us, they're taking their cue and they're thinking, oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person in the office, it's all gonna end, right? If that policy doesn't pass, if that law doesn't pass, it, it's all over. If we don't fix the economy, it's the end of the world. If we don't have religious freedom like my mama and my grandmama had, it, it's, it's all over. If we don't get it all right, if we don't get the right policies. And listen, nothing could be further from the truth. It, like listen, government matters. Okay, policies matter. The freedoms that we have certainly matter. I, I'm not trying to dismiss those things. Those are, those are incredibly important, but none of them are as important as the men and women who understand this word we've been talking about. Faith, right? Faith that transcends circumstances. Faith that has confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart his plans. And we know this from the Old Testament, but we know this from the New Testament too. Because don't forget where we're headed, right? Easter, don't forget the story that we've been talking about. We know this because the most powerful person in the government in Judea, Pilate, right? Pilate brought Jesus in front of him and he looked at him and he said, what is this truth? Crucify him. Game over, right? Maximum sentence. Let's move on. And the only reason you know who Pilate is is because he's a footnote in the story of Jesus, right? The only reason you know probably about anybody from the first century is because they're footnotes in the story of Jesus. So don't grow weary, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus. And, and for like the 20s and 30s and younger crowd, right, I'm like right in the line so I can pick on everybody. Uh, don't grow weary and don't lose heart. Okay, don't, don't fix your eyes on social media. Don't fix your eyes on Washington, D.C. or whatever's happening there. Like, don't fix your eyes on the older generation even, if or where they're getting it wrong, right? And don't get me wrong, there's a beautiful thing to have mentors and people who walk with you, who have more experience than you, but, but man, where they're getting it wrong, like, people your age started this whole thing. <laughs> it, it was people in their 20s and their 30s, this group of people who embraced 
a resurrected Savior and embrace the teaching of a resurrected Savior. And they ultimately changed the world because they had such faith in the face of absurd circumstances. They had such extraordinary faith and the behavior that stemmed from that faith. And so for all of us, look, I'm in it too, okay? I'm probably in both categories. <laughs> Just for a second as we wrap up. Like, can you imagine with me for a second? Imagine with me a generation of Christians. Like, imagine if, if it's our generation right now. But can you imagine a, a generation of Christians for whom it might be said the world was not worthy of them? The world was not worthy of them. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that generation? W wouldn't you want to be a part of that if it was possible? Listen, I, I know we're a little ways from the election, but it's going to ramp up, right? It doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what the economy's doing. It, it doesn't matter if we'll get back to the good old days or not, right? It doesn't matter. All those things are important. But we have an opportunity to run the race set before us right here and right now. And it begins when we stop being so ridiculously afraid. It, it stops when we begin to live with confidence and not arrogance, but confident that God is for us and God is for everybody that you've ever been eyeball to eyeball with, right? And we fix our eyes on Jesus. And why don't we decide to be the generation of Christians for whom the world may not consider themselves worthy of? We have every reason in the world to try. And I think we have no excuse not to. So let me pray for you. God, this is so easy to talk about. And it's easy to really listen to besides maybe a little bit of tension. But God, it is so, so difficult to apply and to live out. And God, for my friends here today, as we live in a chaotic and a noisy world that is constantly pulling our attention this way or that way, I pray that your people right here at Story Church, that we would be people who fix our eyes on you that we would treat others with dignity, that we would treat, treat others with reverence knowing that they're made in your image and, and that we could be irresistible once more for the sake of our neighbors, for the sake of this community. May we be the people who look like you, you who liked people who are nothing like you. God, help us to do that. And God, I pray for the person here today uh, for whom this conversation just stirred up some tension and they're just trying to figure out what to do with that. I pray that you give them wisdom to know what to do with what they've heard and the courage to actually do it. And God, for all of us, may we look in the mirror first and drop off whatever is hindering us, whatever is holding us back, and let us be people who are all in with big faith, knowing that you keep your promises every time. We pray and we ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.